0: recite together the Shema as Jesus would have done, uh, especially in worship, especially right before the scripture was read. Let's recite the Shema together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can have a seat. Last weekend I was in Denver with my children on Saturday and I drug them to the Denver Nature and Science Museum so I could get a ticket to see the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit. Um, There are probably 10 or 15 tiny pieces of papyrus under glass on the edges of a huge round table in the middle of a room And people were crowded around this table. And as you can imagine, they were moving about one or two inches every five minutes. When I walked into the room, I spotted this small gap in the crowd. And I just jumped right into the circle to look down. And I saw the papyrus that had the Genesis flood story written on it. When I looked down, there was Genesis 7 and 8 written in Hebrew, exactly what you were talking about. I'm thankful to Daryl for preaching last week, and I am also very grateful for the round table of leadership that we have here. Our scripture passage is Genesis 9. I'm going to begin with verse 8, go through 17. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a, a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we are at the end of the flood story, and the rainbow is in the clouds. Finally, finally the rainbow. I grew up going to Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and so early on, I understood the rainbow to be a reminder of the story of Noah's Ark and after spending five weeks in the biblical text of this story, I get that this story is a story for grown-ups. But I think I spent much of my life believing that this was a children's story. I, I even uh, decorated the nursery for my first child with arcs and pairs of animals and rainbows. But I'm also a child of the 1970s. And I can remember in the 1970s, there was a group called the Rainbow Coalition. The Rainbow Coalition would show up on my television during the nightly news when the subject was politics. And they were about civil rights for all people. And the rainbow was a symbol that they referenced that was to be a sign of diversity, all the colors together. When I was in school, in high school, My father went on a men's retreat called an Emmaus walk, a walk to Emmaus. And when he came home from that retreat, so did the rainbow. It showed up on T-shirts and bumper stickers and rearview mirrors. And when we saw the rainbow in the sky after the walk to Emmaus, we would stop what we were doing. Uh, If we were driving, we would pull over to the side of the road and take pictures because we were reminded by that rainbow of God's promise, God's grace. More recently, I noticed that San Antonio painted rainbow crosswalks on Main Avenue for the Pride Parade. I think a rainbow in this instance means inclusion. But I noticed a man who was taking a picture at the crosswalk. He said to him that those rainbows meant safety. We are safe now, he said to the reporter. When I was in seminary, I worked for a Methodist pastor named Charles Walls, and Charles was the first to tell me that Noah's Ark was no children's story, that the rainbow was a bow or a weapon. And God hanging his bow in the clouds was like God placing a gun in a gun rack or in a in a gun cabinet. I'll put my weapon here as a reminder for me and you. Because remember, in this story, the destruction of the world by the flood was God's doing. So, in verse 11 of our passage, God says, Never again. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there, there be a flood to destroy the earth. The rainbow is a never again reminder. Now, I've heard some preachers say, God will never again destroy the earth by water. But he didn't say fire. He didn't say earthquake. Yikes. (laughs) That then means that the rainbow becomes a threat. (laughs) See this rainbow? Remember when I wiped everything out with water? That was bad. Wonder what I'm going to do next time. (laughs) Oh, that seems a little bit off to me. Now, I think you miss a pretty big clue in this passage if you go with that interpretation. And the big clue is the word covenant. Covenant appears repeatedly in this passage. It actually shows up in the verses that I read to you seven times. Seven times the number of divine perfection. So the rainbow... Part of the flood story is about covenant. The rainbow is a sign of the covenant that God makes with the world. Like a wedding ring is a sign of a marriage covenant. The rainbow is the sign of the first covenant in the Bible. A covenant is a promise that we make with an open heart and with great hope. A covenant is a promise that we make with an open heart and with great hope. It's very different from a contract. We use a contract to protect our own self-interests, to protect our benefits, and there's a time and a place for that. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs teaches that self-interest drives politics and economics, the market and the state, so contracts frame these areas of our lives. Contracts require signatures and attorneys and courts of law, but covenants are different. As Sachs writes, covenants lift our horizon from self-interest to the common good. So while a contract is about you and me, a covenant is about us. So there's this required step or even a leap in thinking that has to be made to enter into a covenant. The thinking is that I value what happens between us, that I value what happens among us as much, if not even more, than I value my own self interests. Now, maybe the very first time that I got this was when I had a baby. I'd been part of other covenants, but they didn't require that I work this muscle this muscle of valuing we as much as I value me, which typically means that I'm going to sacrifice for you even when I don't want to. So the first year of parenting, I would wake up from a good deep sleep even when I was exhausted. I would go to the grocery store to buy diapers even when I didn't need anything else. I would schedule my work around pediatrician appointments and childcare. I quickly realized in that first year of parenting that being a parent is not about what I can get out of the relationship. Because what do you really get during that first year of a child's life anyways? A few smiles, some good pictures. Twenty years later, I see that being a parent is not at all, at all, about my own self-interest or my benefits. It's about my identity. It's about who I belong to. Covenants enact the belief that life is better together than it is alone. So we have covenants with our children. We have covenants with our spouses, with our faith communities, with our schools, with our parents. These are places where we sacrifice and where we belong. And there's something important that a covenant requires from us. A covenant that a contract doesn't require this, but a covenant requires vulnerability from us. It requires that we be vulnerable. At the end of the flood story in Genesis 9, God takes a very vulnerable stance because there's no change in humanity in this story. The beginning of chapter 6 makes the claim that the world is wicked, and at the end of chapter 8 in Genesis, It says that the human heart is evil. There's no change in humanity. God says to humanity, you be be fruitful. You multiply. You value life. And I will value life. I will not destroy. It's the same thing again, like creation. And I want to pull the Godhead over to the side of the story and say, you're setting yourself up for failure. This is not going to work. You see how they are. But I think God would say back to me, but I'm different. I've changed. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes that in this story, in the flood story, there is an irreversible change in the divine. Now God will approach creation with unlimited patience and forbearance. That's who God is at the end of the flood story, and it's who God is now. It doesn't mean that we can't destroy one another. We very well can, but that's not God's work. There's a lot of potential in a covenant. There's potential for disappointment, (laughs) and I'm not a big fan of disappointment. It usually involves some miserable cocktail of grief and anger and sadness for me. I don't like disappointment. But disappointment has a way of showing me that the world is not all about me. It has a way of giving me a a more accurate view of the world. Alain de Baton wrote an article for the New York Times in 2016 that was the most read article that year, and it was titled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. More people read that article than any other article in the New York Times this year, that year, 2016, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Baton says that we each have an array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to another person. And he suggests that a standard question when dating early on should be something like this. This is how I'm crazy, fill in the blank. How are you crazy? You see, when we're in casual relationships, when they threaten our flawed places, we blame and we run. It's harder to do that in a covenant. And interestingly enough, Alain de Baton claims that he could write follow-up articles that would be titled, Why You Will Land the Wrong Job, Why You Will Have the Wrong Child, Why You Will Go on the Wrong Vacation, Why You Will Pick the Wrong School, and Why You Will Go to the Wrong Church. (laughs) Essentially, we will all be disappointed in relationship. We have triggers that are set off when we are seen close up. And the solution then becomes generosity. It becomes generosity and a, and a commitment. A commitment to negotiate the differences that we have. That's who the right person is to enter into a covenant wa- with. One who is generous and one who is committed to working through differences. And that's what we get from God at the end of chapter 9 in Genesis. We get generosity, we get compassion, and we get commitment. And so then the other thing that there's a potential for in a covenant is there's a potential for transformation. You see, I've lived long enough that I know I'm more likely to change in an atmosphere that's characterized by compassion and generosity than anger and demand. That didn't work very well for me. I've learned that. And that's what characterizes this first covenant in the biblical narrative. God brings compassion. God brings patience. God brings generosity. I saw an interview of Becca Stevens this week. She's the founder and director of Thistle Farms in Nashville. And she was asked in this interview, how far does love go? And her response after thinking for several seconds was, as far as it needs to go. Love goes where it's needed. And so then she said, when I'm excited, love goes. When I'm disappointed, love goes. When I'm tired, love goes. Love shows up where it's needed, and that's where transformation happens. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you can't have a working covenant without experiencing some transformation. You can't be a part of the covenant and stay the same. Jesus came across some people in covenant who refused to change, and he called those people Pharisees and Sadducees and hypocrites. Being a part of a covenant means that we are willing to be changed, we are willing to be transformed for the better. I saw, um, I took a picture when I was traveling this summer, when I was in New Mexico, and i I brought that picture to show you. It's a, a picture of um, a carving that was by, it was carved into a, the trunk of a tree by a stream in a monastery in New Mexico. And that statue is titled Hosanna Madonna. It, it's supposed to be Mary holding the infant Jesus. She's holding him in her left arm. And this is an image of change that can occur in covenant, I believe. When I looked at that statue, I saw security and strength and joy and hope. That's the kind of change that happens in the presence of great mercy. Remember Mary saying these words, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices because the mighty one has done great things for me. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He lifts up the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. He helps his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise that he made to my ancestors. Covenant. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, you are a master craftsman. We are thankful for the work that you do in each of us. Our world changes for the better when we make promises to you and when we make promises to one another in a spirit of compassion. So would you give us the courage to step into covenant, to step into covenant where we have not, because we want to be hopeful and we want to be joyful. Would you also highlight for each of us places and relationships where you are still at work? Give us, Lord, the strength to remain faithful, that we might see our world, our homes, our schools change for the better. We love you, and we love the people and the places that you've given us. Amen. Consider is relationship, and the principle is that as followers of Christ, we have a family. Our scripture passage is a familiar one. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because it's so familiar, I want you to hear a version that's unfamiliar, a version written by Eugene Peterson. And I also want to ask you to help me read it. Now, we're going to read it in four different sections. Because we sit in four different sections. And the reading you will see of Scripture is in four different colors. So you're going to know when it's your part. You, this group right here will be group number one, group number two, group number three, group number four. So let's see. I think we start with yellow, group number one. Let's read this together. You can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life, in which he has the final say in everything. This is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at the one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. All right, group number two. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like I, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head, would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. Group number three. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you, or head telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and therefore necessary. And group number four, you can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach, When it's a part of your own body you are concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose when you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair... The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Corinth was destroyed two centuries before Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And then a century after its destruction, it was recycled. It was recycled and rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., There were two ports in Corinth, and so it was a bustling center of trade, both to the east and to the west. It may have seemed, if you and I were in Corinth in the time that Paul wrote this letter, that Corinth collected people. There was a variety of humanity here. People came from all over the empire. There were Egyptians and Parthians and Syrians, Jews and Asians and Greeks and Romans and Ethiopians, all in Corinth. People came to this double port city and they stayed because of the work opportunities. So when Paul writes about diversity in this letter, the Corinthians get it. They see it. They live it. Thursday evening of this last week, I went to the Pearl to eat dinner and then went to the Majestic to see a play. And on Friday afternoon, I drove to downtown Austin and walked around a little bit down there and then went to eat. And I realized that when I break out of my home and I break out of my neighborhood, I see the beauty of human diversity. It's out there. It's very much within my grasp. So I, too, get how people are different and diverse, and they have unique gifts to offer to any group. But I'm afraid that often in my world I'm convinced that it would be best if I just do the same as everybody else who's around me. You know, like when I'm a passenger on an airplane, the pilot doesn't much care about how I'm different or what gifts I have to offer, She or he just wants to make sure that the flight attendant tells me about the seat belt and that my butt stays in the seat. On an airplane, I'm just one of many butts in a seat. In a restaurant, I'm a mouth, sitting with other mouths to be fed. And in a museum, I'm just a set of eyes or a set of hands. The security guard who is watching the room in the museum is watching the hands in the room, making sure that we don't touch and we don't take. Corinth had a temple to the Greek god Asclepius, where one would go for healing. So an Asclepian was not unique to Corinth. You could find them in other cities, but Corinth had one. It was a place of healing, and the primary mode of healing here was sleep, which I love because it leads me to imagine that an Asclepian temple would be run by mom's. Because how often have I said, if you just get some rest, you will feel better. In an Asclepian, you could make an offering of a model of the particular part of your body that you wanted to be healed. So archaeologists know where these temples were because of the prevalence of the terracotta, terracotta body parts that can be found in the soil. When Paul writes about one monstrous giant eye or one big ear or a giant hand, the Corinthians get it. They've seen it. Maybe they've even made an offering of a single terracotta foot or hand themselves. When Paul says when one part of the body suffers, they all all suffer, the Corinthians knew this to be true as we do too, just in the past couple of months at my house, strep throat, headaches. If you break a limb on your body, an arm or a leg, whatever the ailment is, when one part is in need of healing on our body, we know one part suffers, all the parts suffer. One part of the body is ailing, It gets the attention of all the other parts of the body. I remember a few years ago, Afrin Nasal Spray had this commercial that they aired on television that was a giant nose. Y'all remember that? The giant nose sat up in bed, and then the giant nose put on a suit and went to work. Supposedly, this was a guy with a cold, and we all who watched the commercial knew that because we've all had colds. And when you're congested and you can't breathe, you just feel like one giant nose. So I've wondered this week, when we come together as the church, when we come together as the body of Christ, what do we look like? Do we look like one giant body part, all playing the same role? If so, which one? I'm really hoping there's not an image behind me. That's good. (laughs) It doesn't really matter what particular body part it would be. If we're all playing the same role, it's either monstrous or it's incredibly goofy and pretty hilarious. Now, there would be a couple of reasons why the body of Christ might look like one giant body part. First, it's possible that we've come together with the idea that one role is best. One role is the premium, like thinking. If thinking is the role that we really value, then we just look like a giant brain. Or if it's consuming, then we're a stomach. Feed us, say the sheep. We're better when the shepherd feeds us directly from his hand, and we're a giant stomach. But the other possibility that we might look like a giant body part is illness. Because if one part of the body is sick, they're the loudest. And this loudest voice convinces the rest of us to make way for them. So the stomach who consumes too much demands that the rest of the body slow down. What action gets valued in the church? If it's not loving, if loving isn't in the mix, we need to look out. Paul even says this to the Corinthians in the next chapter. Love is primary. So what action is it that we value in the church? Is it consuming? Is it criticizing? Is it believing? Is it doing? It's monstrous when we're all the same. Or when a bully makes demands for conformity in a group. Paul is calling the Corinthians... Paul is calling the body of Christ to consider a priority. And the priority is to embrace what is different. To embrace those around us that we might not only consider different, but he also says those who we would consider weak or inferior. Now, Paul wasn't the only teacher in the first century to use this metaphor of the body to teach The image of the body and its many parts was a familiar teaching tool in the ancient world, and it was used often, but in a very different way than Paul uses it. Here's an example. A revolt of the hands, mouth, and feet against the stomach weakens the body, which is to say the stomach is the priority. The rest of you do what you can to get food to the stomach, Some are important, others are inferior. If you're unimportant, you work for the privileged parts of the body. Paul knows this teaching, and he says to the followers of Christ in Corinth, no, that is not the right way to talk about the body. What you call weak is indispensable. What you call less honorable is worthy of honor. It is worthy of respect. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, which do you prefer? Do you prefer full-bodied hair or good digestion? (laughs) Sometimes I act like it's full-bodied hair. The parts of the body that we don't give much attention to are, in fact, indispensable. There was a book that was out a few years ago that many uh, here in the church read. is probably five years old. It's called The Starfish and the Spider. It was a book about organizations and organizational leadership. And the book put two different models of bodies forward to consider in the organization that you're in. So one was the spider. And the spider has this kind of top-down organization to it because basically a spider has a head and a spider has eight legs and the head is clearly running the show for the spider, right? If you chop the spider's head off, it dies. A spider can survive without a leg or two. It can survive without a couple of eyes, but it can't survive without its head. Then consider the body of the starfish. The body of the starfish, when you look at it, it looks similar to the spider. It's a bunch of legs coming out of a central body, but the central body isn't in charge of the starfish. The major organs are replicated through each arm of the starfish. So if you cut a starfish in half, you get two starfish. In the 16th century, when the Spanish were impressed by the Aztecs with their great highways and their aqueducts and their temples, they went right to their leader. Montezuma II. They seized his gold, they killed him, they barricaded the roads to the capital city, and within 80 days, a quarter of a million people in that capital city had died of starvation. But when they encountered the Apaches, when the Spanish encountered the Apaches, it was a different story. They had no chief, they had no pyramids, no highways, no towns, no gold, no centralized system. While they didn't have a leader, they had an influencer, but it depended upon the problem at hand, who the influencer was. The power was in the individuals among the Apaches, and the Apaches held the Spanish off for two centuries. The Apaches operated like the starfish model of an organization, and the Aztecs like a spider. The book goes on to point to modern organizations that look like starfish, and one of the organizations that they bring about is AA. In AA, nobody owns it. Nobody puts in an application to be a part of AA. Uh, Sponsors lead not by command, but they lead by example, and you can't count the members in AA. They come in and they come out, and you can always go back. Wikipedia was another example, because anyone can be a part. And the people who are the users of Wikipedia are also the contributors. They police the site. They clean up the vandalism. Then at the end of the book, there's this gem. When your group operates like a starfish, each member adds value, and each new member increases its influence. Each member adds value, and each new member increases its influence. Everyone is important. No one is unimportant. That sounds like Paul. Paul wrote, and we read these words. By means of the Spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call the shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life, in which Christ has the final say in everything. For the Corinthian, the human body was first and foremost in their vision and in their experience. Every couple of years, this poor city would host games called the Ithmian Games, and then the population would double in size, and people would stay in tents all over the city. Which was quite lucky for Paul, right? A tent maker. During the Isthmian Games, the human body was on full display. Athletic men and women competed in foot races, in discus, and javelin throwing, and wrestling, and boxing, and chariot races, and even in singing. Singing was an athletic event. When Paul writes about the beauty of the body working together, the Corinthians get it. They've seen it. They've lived it. And when I think about you and me, I think, yeah, we get that too. We have the Olympics where world-class athletes compete and we can all watch. We have the Super Bowl where every year Tom Brady wins. We get how amazing it is when the body works well together. But even better than an athlete who never loses is a story I heard this week, a story of an athlete named Adrienne Haslett. She was one of the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. She was standing at the finish line when the bomb exploded. She had her left leg amputated and she underwent a lengthy recovery. This year she was training to run in the Boston Marathon because it's going to fall on the anniversary of the exact date of the bombing. And while she was training, she was hit by a car. The car shattered her left shoulder to the point where her elbow was sitting in her lap. From the ambulance, she called her surgeon and she said, I need you now, get to the hospital surgery was successful and she is again recovering she got a lot of an attention for a recent instagram post where she said i've been broken but i'm more than my broken pieces more than broken pieces that my friends is the body of christ We, the body of Christ, are charged with regularly calling on the Holy Spirit with the words, Help, we need you now. And we rest assured that we are more than an assimilation of parts. We are more than an assimilation of broken pieces. So we invest. We invest in one another. We invest in sacrificial love because we know that truly loving is truly living. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. We need you now. We seek to be the body of Christ, to release our partial and our piecemeal lives, and to enter into wholeness, wholeness where you have the final say on everything. Would the gifts that you have placed in each person here be evident and utilized? Would you grow these gifts in this community, multiply the gifts in this community, and would you enable us to take risks, risks that draw us together and reveal what is true and what is honorable to the world that surrounds us? We ask this in the name of Jesus the Christ who modeled sacrificial love for each of us. Amen.